Hi, this is David and Barbie Cooper. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's always a privilege to share this time with you. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media. And for more information and resources to help you grow in your walk with the Lord, go to malparent.com. Thank you for your generous support. It helps the ministry greatly. Today, we're going to talk about foundational truths in our spiritual life, looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The strength of every building lies in its foundation. If the foundation is strong, the structure endures for centuries. But if the foundation is weak or flawed, the building collapses without any notice. The same is true spiritually. We all begin the Christian life as newborn babies, born again by the saving grace of God. Babies are born to grow. Our spiritual growth requires us to have a strong foundation of faith based on the person of Christ and on biblical truth. The Word of God calls us to build on the right foundation as we grow in our faith. And this is what we come to in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, which is baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. He means by that and by the grace of God at work in our lives, we will go on to maturity. While we need to move forward in spiritual maturity, we must build on the right foundation. Here we find six specific areas of spiritual truths we need to understand and build on. Now, when the writer tells us to move beyond the elementary teachings. He's not saying to forget the elementary teachings. He's saying to build on those as you continue to grow. And he gives us these six specific areas. And I think it's important for us to stop and take a moment today and understand these six spiritual truths mentioned and what is foundational about them that we can build on. The first truth he mentions that we should build on is the truth of repentance from acts that lead to death, repentance from sin. Now, sin, which basically means to miss the mark, to miss the goal, to, to fall short of the standard, to violate the will of God. Sin, the Bible tells us, is a state of being. We're born in sin. We're born with a sin nature, even though we're made in God's image. We're flawed. And it's also an action. All of us have committed sins. We've all disobeyed God. We've all violated the word of God. We know that in our conscience. Sin is basically disobedience to the will of God. 1 John 4 and 3 says sin is transgression of the law of God. Now, the result of sin is death, and that's why he says repentance from acts or actions that lead to death, spiritual death. Certain sins could even lead to physical death, but death in the sense of destruction, of harm. The Bible says in Romans 6 and 23, the wages or the result of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, repentance means to turn back to God when we stray away from Him. We have an awakening. We realize we've gotten off course. We come before the Lord and ask Him to forgive us of our sins, and we turn around and get back on track. Acts 3.19, the apostle Peter in his message preached, repent so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He says, repent and turn to God so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s, said that repentance 
includes the entirety of the Christian life. That when the Lord told us to repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's an action that we have to all go through at times, not just our initial repentance of our sin to accept Christ as our Savior. But when we get off course to repent, to turn back to God for a time of spiritual renewal and refreshing. Second of all, we see the truth of faith in God. He said, let's build upon this foundation. Now, faith, which is trust, faith begins with a simple childlike trust in Christ as our Savior. I was saved by grace when I was eight years old. You see, that's really young. Now, some people discount a childhood salvation, but they forget Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, unless you repent and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Unless you change, the King James uses the word converted. Unless you're converted, which means to change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The same gospel I understood when I was eight, it's the exact same gospel to me. It sounds the same to me. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, and that includes me, believes in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. A person can understand that. When they're seven, they can understand it when they're 70. It's a simple, and that's everybody begins right there. The very simple message and truth, the saving grace and the love of God. And faith begins there in a childlike state, a childlike faith. But you've got to continue to grow. You keep that childlike faith, but you mature, you grow, you build on it. That's the point of Hebrews. Let us build on that and go on to maturity. So faith grows into full assurance and confidence. The more that we know the Lord, the more that we walk with Him, the more that we experience His grace throughout life, all the experiences of my life since the time I was eight years old in that church service, and I accepted Christ as my Savior, made a public confession. I've seen the Lord work in my life in so many ways, so many extraordinary ways, so that my faith has grown in many ways. I have a full assurance, a full confidence. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 goes on to say, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So we have the foundation of repentance, we have the foundation of faith in God to continue to build upon that foundation. Then third of all, he mentions instruction about baptisms, plural, can be translated ceremonial rites. Now, the ancient world and even religions today practice certain types of baptisms or ceremonial cleansings to resolve their guilt and their sin. The Christian church practices one baptism, and that baptism is a sacrament an act of worship of our confession of faith in Christ. In Acts 2.38, in the first message preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter said to the crowd, repent, repent and turn to God. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance was a part and baptism of the early Christian gospel. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, Peter said, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know at the end of the Pentecost message, over 3,000 people immediately put their faith in Jesus, and they all went down to the Jordan River. You can imagine how long it took to baptize 3,000 new converts. It lasted for days. But they understood that baptism was an outward sign of an inward work of grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, 
says that we were buried with Christ through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Going into the water, the baptismal pool and coming out is a reenactment of Jesus in the tomb and coming out. We go in the water, a cleansing, not outwardly, but inwardly. It demonstrates the fact that we have been raised from the dead, spiritual death, to walk and to live in newness of life. So baptism itself is a reenactment, an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to resurrected life. In Ephesians 4, verse 5, when Paul talks about the unity of the church and he says there's one Lord, one faith, he says one baptism. And this is the one baptism, the Christian baptism. When you confess Christ is your Savior, you enter the waters to confirm your faith and to confess your faith in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying not to get caught up in these other religious baptisms and ceremonial customs. The baptism we need is a baptism of faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Then fourth of all, he says, in this foundation you're building upon, you have to understand the principle of the laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands was used to ordain a prophet, a priest, or a king in the Old Testament. It signified a transference of anointing and power. Jesus often touched people and healed them. He even laid his hands upon the children to bless them. And Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, we read of the leper who came to Jesus right after the finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. A man just destroyed by leprosy, deteriorating before everyone's eyes. And he fell on his knees, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the Bible says Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He said, I am willing, be clean. And in Mark 10, verse 15, we read how parents brought the kids and the disciples said, don't let the kids around Jesus. And he said, don't keep the children from coming to me. The kingdom of God belongs to them. The Bible says here in Mark's gospel that Jesus took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. When I conduct dedication services for the children of our church, always go down with the parents and I'll lay my hands on them and speak the blessing of the Lord. Now, the apostles laid hands on ministers to commission them to be preachers of the gospel and representatives of the early church. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the early church leaders were in a prayer meeting, and it was during that meeting prophetically that the word of God came through the Holy Spirit, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The Bible tells us that when they finished praying, that they laid their hands upon Barnabas and Saul, who later was known as Paul the Apostle. They laid their hands upon them, and they sent them forth into that first missionary journey. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy, do not neglect your gift, which you received through the prophetic gift when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. And he's reminded Timothy when he accepted the call to be a pastor, the body of elders laid their hands upon him and prayed for him. And there was a prophetic gift given that day, a prophetic message about his destiny. He said, you've got to stir up that gift. Don't neglect that gift, that calling, that anointing in your life. And it came through from God, but it came through the laying on of hands by the elders. And then finally, we learned that the elders of the church are to anoint the sick with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, and lay their hands upon them for the prayer of faith in James chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. So the writer of Hebrews says, you need to understand 
what the proper ministry of laying on of hands is because there were some at that time that were coming up with mysticism about laying on of hands and so forth to understand how that action is used properly in prayer and commissioning for ministry. And then fifth of all, he says, we need to understand the resurrection of the dead and build on the foundation of what the scripture teaches about the resurrection of the dead. And this is something everybody's interested in, what happens after life. What is beyond the veil? People write books about coming back from surgery and seeing themselves. And some have written books about going to heaven. And people are always intrigued with these stories. Well, what does the Bible teach that we need to know as Christians and not be misled about what other religions may say or philosophical perspectives? Atheism says there's nothing after this life. Eastern philosophy says there's reincarnation and the successions of reincarnated states based on our karma. That is the balance of our good works and our, our bad works. Some say, well, when we die, we just remain in the ground until the last days. But what does the Bible say? He wants us to understand what the resurrection that it really means from a Christian perspective. Well, first of all, the resurrection that it refers to Jesus' resurrection that it, and he's reminding them this is the cornerstone of our faith. Romans 4 and 25 says that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 14, verse 9 says that for this reason, Christ both died and came to life again, that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. So the resurrection of the dead, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is the doctrine of Christ's resurrection of the dead. And because he was raised, he said, because I live, you shall live also. That's John 14, verse 9. And we are promised resurrection, which means eternal life after this life in heaven. Standing at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus made this announcement in John 11, verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he or she who lives and believes in me shall never die, never die. You go from life unto life. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2 and 25, this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So no matter what you hear from other religion or philosophy or atheism, the fact is on the third day, Jesus' tomb was empty. Christ is risen. And because we're born again, we've been given the free gift of eternal life. And as soon as this life is over, your spirit will immediately appear before God in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, to be absent from the body, and he's writing there about physical death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the sixth and final foundational truth that he says, these are elementary basic truths, but you always need to understand them and build on them and not get misguided by other perspectives. He says there is the doctrine of eternal judgment. And the word doctrine means teaching or principle or truth. Eternal judgment. Now we live in a world of time and space and matter, but that all exists within a greater reality of eternity. A universe has been here billions of years and the matter from which the universe came is eternal. And God is eternal. And there's eternal judgment, which is the most sobering and frightening concept of any concept. What is eternal judgment? None of us like judgment in any shape, form, or fashion. 
Well, first of all, the word judgment simply means an evaluation, a test, an examination. It doesn't mean a condemnation or a damnation. It's a judgment. It's an evaluation of life. But there's an eternal judgment. In other words, a judgment beyond this life. In other words, what we're doing today has consequences for eternity. Now, the final judgment awaits all humanity. The final evaluation, when this life is over, in some way, we're all going to be evaluated. The Bible doesn't give us all the details of that, but it states that as a fact, as a truth. And that's all I need to know about it, the fact that it awaits me. If I'm in a course, and I've taken many, as you have in school, in universities, I want to know when the test date is because I want to be ready for the test. And there's a final exam for everybody after this life is over. And we're evaluated for what we have, what God gave us, what we knew, what was revealed to us, and how we responded, how we acted, what we believed based on the opportunities that we were given. We're only judged according to what we know and what we've heard, and God is merciful and graceful. But there is a final exam coming in Hebrews 9 and 27 makes, to me, one of the most sobering statements ever penned in literary history. It is appointed unto a person once to die, and after that, the judgment. There's an appointment once. There's no reincarnation once. You're only going to die once. You're going to live in this world once, and eventually that life, this life is going to end, and then eternity begins. And after this life, the judgment, the evaluation. Now, when we're born again through faith in Christ, we understand that the reason Jesus died on the cross was to take our judgment so that we didn't have to fear judgment. So God's people, born again through faith in Jesus, will only be judged and evaluated for our works, not for our sins. Our sins have been atoned for. That's why we receive his atonement and pardon as a gift so that we don't have to face judgment for our sins. So we will be evaluated for our works, our responsibilities. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the rewards that are due us for what we've done, for the deeds done in the body, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So there is an evaluation of our works. Jesus told that great parable of the stewards who were given great wealth. And some invested and one man didn't invest anything. And those that invested and used what they had were commended. Well done, good and faithful servant, a commendation for their work. Now, the greatest truth I've ever found in the Bible about the word judgment and all the different ways it's used and different angles of it and different definitions and different types of judgments, self-judgment, not judging others. The word's used in a lot of different ways. But of this final judgment, of this eternal judgment, here's the greatest truth I've ever found in the Bible. It's in 1 John 4, 17. He says to those of us who've trusted Christ as our Savior, we have confidence on the day of judgment. He says, God's love is made complete among us because of the love of God. We have confidence on the day of judgment. Because our sins have been forgiven, we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're justified before God in spite of all of our imperfections and mistakes and sometimes sins. 
We're saved by grace. We're not trying to depend upon our works, our religious observances, or on ourselves. We're depending fully on the mercy of God and the grace of God. And that is the safest place to be spiritually. And you can have confidence on the day of judgment when you trust Christ as your Savior. Today, if you've not accepted Christ as your Savior, maybe you're just on the fringe. You say, I've learned so much about Jesus, but I don't really know personally if I've accepted him or not. Maybe there's doubt in your own heart. Today, right now, you can be born again through faith in Christ. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life. I'd like to lead you in prayer today because the Bible says if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's found in Acts 16, verse 31, and it's true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you join me for prayer? Just pray this prayer after me if today you'd like to make a confession of faith in Christ and be born again. Pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I do believe in you. You are the son of the living God, the only savior of the world. Lord, today I bring you my sinfulness. I ask and receive your forgiveness and your cleansing. Lord, I cannot save myself. I depend only on your mercy and your grace to save me. Today, Lord, I put my faith in you. And now I confess Jesus is Lord of my life. The Bible says if you believe and you make that confession, you are saved. I want to send you my book, Fresh Start, help you begin to grow in your Christian walk. Appreciate so much you sharing this Bible study with me. I too am growing spiritually just in a fresh study personally of the book of Hebrews and how it's speaking to me in my life. Let me encourage you to get the Mount Parent app today. If you don't have it already, let's stay connected. All the great ministries of our church that are available for you and your family. And follow me on social media and also my sermon podcast. You'll get all types of messages and sermons and teachings you can listen to and share with others as well. Let's connect together. I'm always praying for you. I believe in you. Above all, I love you and care about you. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in church this Sunday for worship as a part of the Mount Perrin family on campus online. Make sure you invite somebody to go to church with you this Sunday. God bless you. Have an incredible day. I trust the message has been an encouragement to you today. Remember to follow us on social media and connect with us at mountperrin.com. I'll see you right here next week for a fresh message from God's Word.